thanks for tuning in to the Durban Memorial Baptist Church podcast. We're a group of sinners saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and here you will hear the Word of God. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a pleasure to steward this pulpit with this opportunity to give glory to the Lord through the exposition of his word. Going to start a little differently this morning. Mickey Cohen was an infamous gangster from years gone by. His life of crime started at a young age when he was just nine years old. He was sent off to reform school for petty crimes like shoplifting and theft and when he was a teenager, he started to gain some notoriety by being a, uh, uh, fighting in an underground boxing match in L.A. And then he would move to Cleveland when he was just 15 years old and he joined a legitimate boxing league. And in a match on June 12, 1931, Cohen fought and lost against future uh, world featherweight champion Tommy Paul. Now, Mickey was knocked out just two minutes and 20 seconds into this uh, first round of that fight. And during the fight, he was given the moniker Gangster Mickey Cohen. Eventually, he would move from Cleveland to Chicago where he'd get involved with organized crime. He'd cross paths with the likes of Al Capone and he would be in and out of prison. And from there in Cleveland, he would move on to uh, go to Vegas where he would be involved with a variety of territory wars and shootings. And he turned his home into a literal fortress. He even had a well-equipped arsenal that he said he kept next to his closet of 200 tailor-made suits that he would wear. Where. After spending in time, uh, some time in prison, he became an international celebrity with a menagerie of businesses, shops, clubs, casinos, and even driving an ice cream van in L.A. At some point in this whirlwind of a life, Mickey Cohen had the opportunity to meet Billy Graham. Cohen was recorded in Time Magazine as saying, and bear with me here, <laughs> I'm very high on the Christian way of life. Billy came up to me and before we had some food, he said, what do you call it? That thing they say, uh, the, 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 the grace? Yeah, grace. Then we talked about Christianity and stuff. Yeah, see? <laughs> I, had... <laughs> I practiced for my wife this morning. <laughs> Christian leaders saw Cohen's participation in these things as a great opportunity. This is a man who quite literally was known for his sin. For him to repent and to come to Christ would have been an amazing testimony to share. And so these Christian leaders who had access to Mickey would regularly visit him. And it was reported that one night after studying Revelation 3.20, Cohen said that he opened the doors of my life to Christ. Of course, the Christian leaders were elated. They thought that they had seen this great uh, transformation in front of them. Their hopes were high and their expectations lofty for this man. But then it was reported as the months went by that there was no substantive change in the life of gangster Mickey Cohen. No fruit, no repentance. 
Finally, his Christian friends confronted gangster Mickey Cohen. And after the confrontation, he responded, no one told me I'd have to give up my work or my friends. After all, there were Christian football players, Christian cowboys, Christian politicians. Why not a Christian gangster? (laughs) Now we can laugh at a funny voice that's not very accurate. But I wasn't there in the room that day when that was said, which is a true statement. I would have hoped that those were there drew Mickey's attention to Galatians 2.20. Sorry, brother. Galatians 2.20 that says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I would have hoped that they would have tried to show Mickey, gangster Mickey Cohen, that coming to Christ means turning from the sin that it wants to find us. Coming to Christ does not always mean leaving your profession, but it is the foundation. If the foundation of your profession is contrary to God's righteousness, then following Christ very well may mean leaving your profession. Pursuing holy and righteous living does not earn you favor before God, but it is the product of receiving favor. As far as I could tell in my very cursory look at the life of gangster Mickey Cohen this week, there was never a moment of real repentance. He was never able to let go of his earthly desires. In many ways, he may be like the New Testament figure Demas. We've talk briefly about Demas was mentioned at the end of Colossians. He will be mentioned at the end of Philemon when we get there. And then the other time that he's mentioned is in 2 Timothy, where Paul would state that Demas had departed from following the Lord because he loved living in the present world too much. We have no evidence of faith and conversion in Mickey Cohen or Demas for that matter. But that's not the case. For a guy we're going to look at today named Onesimus. We're going to learn more about him. If you would, open your Bibles to Philemon. We started looking at this letter last week, and we discovered that Paul is writing to Philemon to encourage Philemon to forgive Onesimus. And as we walk through verses 8 and following this morning, we're going to gain a better idea of how Onesimus hurt Philemon. And we'll see that we... we will also see the actions of Christian reconciliation, what the actions are to Christian reconciliation and forgiveness. This series has been entitled, I am forgiven, I forgive. I am forgiven, I forgive. Well, that's easy to say, but how do we actually do it? How do we actually act upon it? I want our church to be filled with people who are acting upon what they have learned from the word of God, not just reciting meaningless, pithy statements that sound good, but make no impact on our everyday life. If you've been in a committee meeting with me, you know that I usually try to wrap things up by saying, okay, people, what are the action points? What are we going to do from this meeting? Uh, we, we talked about all this stuff. Now, how do we put it into practicality? Let's get to it. That's the same approach we should have with scripture in some regards. Sure, texts lend themselves to have more clearly defined responses in some places than it is in others. But we should always seek to read the word of God while asking, Lord, how can I use this word for your glory? 
How do I use this to serve you? Lord, what are you saying here in your word and how do I apply that to my life? Through our look at the book of Philemon, we're shown the character, the actions, and the motives of one who is enabled to forgive and who has been forgiven by the Lord and thus empowered to forgive others. Let's not just hear these words. Let's do them. Let's act upon it. Not just have it be something that we talk about on a Sunday morning, but apply in our lives. Through our look here at Philemon, we're shown those characters and actions and motives here. And when Paul was writing this letter, it's clear that he assumed Philemon already had a a biblical theology of forgiveness. It's assumed that Philemon knew the biblical foundations for why forgiveness is important and why forgiveness should be a big thing in Christians' lives. So before we get into our text this morning, I just want to briefly suggest five biblical reasons as to why Christians should be supernaturally inclined to extend forgiveness. The first one comes to us from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 21 through 22. It says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. We should have a foundation of forgiveness by understanding uh, scriptural teaching on it because first we see holding on to anger towards another person is sinful. Even resenting feelings without acting upon them is sinful. The sixth commandment of thou shalt not murder is not limited explicitly to taking another person's life. But Jesus shows us it has the intention of harboring resentment towards another person. So if we want to honor God in our lives, then we must seek peace and reconciliation with others. That's a first foundation for uh, forgiveness. And also in scripture, in Matthew twenty-two thirty-nine. You read, a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. We got no problems forgiving ourselves when we've done wrong, right? How often do we rationalize our own behavior or make excuses for ourselves? We're quick to say, oh, I didn't mean it that way or whatever the case may be. When we've hurt someone, we even think, why won't they forgive me? I said, I'm sorry. We excuse ourselves in our inner monologue time and time again. One pastor noted that it is utter selfishness not to extend that same forgiveness to others when we're so quick to give it to ourselves. Selfishness also causes us to exaggerate the faults of those who offend us when we minimize our own faults. So if we're going to love others as love our neighbors as ourselves, we should extend forgiveness. There's a third scriptural foundation found in Psalm 51.4. David writes, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. In this psalm, David is crying out to the Lord in anguish over the sin that he committed against God. But what exactly was the sin that he was talking about here? Well, he had committed adultery with Bathsheba. He had had Uriah killed. These were sins that were against a woman, a man, and really the entire country as David was king who didn't go out to battle with them. And so he sinned against all these people. And yet David is saying against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil. 
This doesn't mean that our sins against other people are no big deal. It doesn't mean that our sins have no effect on other people. Rather, we learn from this that in any and all of our offenses, even times where other people sin against us, they're an even greater offense against God. Any sins that happen where we're sinning against someone else or someone's sinning against us, it is a greater offense against God than it is against the other person. How does this empower our forgiveness? Well, if God can forgive others of the greater offense to his holy nature, how can we not forgive the lesser offense against us? We are not more righteous, more holy, more perfect, more blameless than God. And so thus, if the sins are worse against him, we should also be able to forgive others as he forgives We also see another reason in Scripture in Romans 12, 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. If you find yourself unable to forgive others, you're forgetting you are not the great arbiter of justice. You're forgetting you're not the one who exacts perfect justice. We're forgetting that God will rightly reward and punish every single thing that happens on this earth. So when we forget, when we refuse to forgive, we are equating our view of justice, which is clouded by the flesh with the perfect justice of God when we seek our own revenge. Christians don't have to do that. We don't have to hang on to animosity. We rest knowing all of creation sits in the hands of a just God. I will repay, says the Lord. Vengeance is mine. He's the perfect arbiter of justice. Then a fifth biblical foundation back to Matthew chapter 5, verse 23 and 24. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember your brother has something against you, leave your gift before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then... Come and offer your gift. When we have ongoing animosity and strife and conflict between us, y'all, we can't even worship right. When revenge is weighing upon us and we're distracted from giving God our first and our best. But this doesn't mean that we should just cram the feud into the back of our mind as we walk through the doors of the church. This means that it is best to truly go to that person and seek reconciliation and then come back and worship the Lord. We should also note that we don't need to wait for the other person to seek reconciliation. If we know we've done something wrong against someone, we should approach them humbly and earnestly and seek forgiveness. And if someone has wronged us, even if they don't know it, We should seek true, humble, earnest reconciliation for the glory of God. These are just some of the foundations for forgiveness in Christians that you can find all throughout Scripture. These are things that we should be talking about in our discipleship groups, in our Sunday school classes, that we would have a foundation upon what God says about forgiveness. These are likely lessons that Philemon already understood when this letter was addressed to him. So let us now walk through verses 8 through 18 and see the actions. We're going to see three actions of actually extending forgiveness. First, looking at verses 8 through 14. 
Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in prison. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. So I mentioned last week, and we'll just kind of walk through this text before we get to the action step here. I mentioned last week, Paul had the authority as an apostle to simply tell Philemon what he should do in this situation and leave it at that. Paul was an apostle. Philemon was a member, maybe had some uh, role within the church, but we know he was a member and a host of a local home church. It would have been well within reason and standards of practice for Philemon to receive orders from Paul and to just act accordingly. I think all of us have been in a situation where we've received orders from someone who was appropriate to give orders and we do what they tell us to do. But that's not what goes on here. Paul appeals to Philemon not as a superior, but as a friend. He's a guiding, compassionate elder seeking to give Philemon wise counsel that Philemon enacts not out of obligation, but out of love. And let me just say that this is how the church should be. As the pastor here, the Lord has provided me and this church has provided me with an opportunity to lead at Durban Memorial Baptist Church. From this position, there are decisions that have to be made and opportunities that are given and challenges that have to be met. And while I'm not always as gracious as I should be or would like to be, I would hope that the church sees the direction and decisions that I make or anyone within the leadership makes not as blind commands from a cold superior, but rather as a loving guidance from someone who cares. I desire to see us willfully and joyfully walk together hand in hand for the glory of God. Not just barely hanging on to the handrail, just resenting the crazy driver up in front. We should be willingly doing this together when all sides are approaching a situation with the intention of truly giving God glory. There often doesn't need to be compulsion. It's not pulling you by the teeth when you realize what we're doing is for the glory of God. There often doesn't need to be compulsion. We should be receiving direction from the word of God and going together in that direction. We should be able to walk together, not out of compulsion, but out of love. Plus, in the situation we looked at today, we're talking about forgiveness. How effective do you think it would have been to simply order Philemon to forgive, or to forgive Onesimus? You ever seen two little brothers or two little sisters fighting in a room together and then mom walks in and she says, stop fighting. Y'all give each other a hug. The kids just look like he told them to eat a slug. They go in and give a little half-hearted hug. Then they go back to the other corners of the room sulking more than they were even before. It's hard, if not impossible, to compel forgiveness. But as Christians, for the Christians, For Philemon, forgiveness is not to be compelled, it's to be desired. We should truly desire to forgive others. As we saw last week, Philemon, by the grace of God, had Christian character that empowered him to forgive. 
When we've seen clear instruction and foundation and the great profitability of God's word, we understand forgiveness not as a compulsion, but as a grace of God resting in his sovereignty to take care of the business. So Philemon is ready to forgive Onesimus. And starting in verse 10, we see the first action of forgiveness, which is to receive. Paul says there in verses 10 through 14 that he is sending Onesimus back to Philemon. The idea is that Philemon is opening his life back up to to receive Onesimus in a way that allows Onesimus to be a part of Philemon's life again. In the verses that we start, or the, the, in the verses here, we start to see the difference between Onesimus and that gangster Mickey Cohen that I mentioned at the onset. Onesimus was truly repentant for what he had done to Philemon. We'll see more on this in a moment, but Onesimus was a slave who ran away from his benevolent master's home. And not only did he run away, but he took a pillage with him. He he took some sort of monetary value with him when he left. It seems that he robbed the joint before getting out of Dodge, if you want to talk like Mickey Cohen. For a slave to do this to his master in that time, it would have been a death sentence if he would have been caught. There was one instance of a Roman official who was actually murdered by one of his slaves. But there was a problem. He had 300 slaves. They didn't know which one did it. So you know what the the judge ruled? Kill all 300. Just took care of all of them. Onesimus would have known the seriousness of his crime. And so because of that, that's likely why he fled to Rome. He flew miles and miles away, ran miles and miles away to get into the big city and to just blend into the background. He would have been able to sink into the crowd to avoid uh, detection. Uh, No one would have known who he was. But now here he is. If you remember what I said in Colossians, it is likely or at least plausible. He's the one handing this letter to the guy who could have killed him with the snap of his fingers. And if he wasn't the one who handed him the letter, he was at least there in the room as this letter is being being read, watching eye to eye with the man with a snap of his fingers could take his life. What changed? What possibly could have made Onesimus go back to Philemon? I'll tell you what. Onesimus received Christ Jesus as his Lord. Somehow, Through the providence of God, Onesimus crosses paths with Paul while he's in Rome. There's conjecture on this. I'm filling in some gaps, so don't take this as scripture, but just as an interesting theory here. Some believe Onesimus Onesimus may have heard someone humming a tune that he remembered a hymn from his master's house back in Asia. And he may have followed the sound of that hymn to a place where he would see a guy named to a place where he would then hear the gospel and not just hear it this time because he was at his master's house where he probably heard it time and time again, but this time receive Christ as Lord. The means of how he got there is not as important as the end in this case because Onesimus found salvation in Rome. Paul believes it to be authentic. 
Paul says that Onesimus is my child in verse 10, showing that Paul has been discipling Onesimus. Paul became his father during imprisonment. You read in there during the time that Paul was in Rome under house arrest. Now this fugitive has become a child of God. And it changed everything about Onesimus. Everything about him has changed. Paul uses a really clever wordplay in verses 10 and 11. We don't catch this as much in English, but I'll try to fill in the blanks here. Onesimus in Greek was a common name for a slave. That word Onesimus means useful. And then look at verse 11. He says, useful was useless, but now indeed he's useful. Useful was useless, but now he's useful again. Such is the power of the gospel. It doesn't matter what this world calls you. Without Christ, you are not useful. Our efforts are in vain and for a fading glory. We toil in the sun. We go day to day to thing to thing. But then when we are saved by grace through faith, oh, how useful we become. Working for the kingdom of the Lord. We're working for eternal purposes that last forever. We're made stewards of our lives for the glory of God. And when we understand that we are called to be a part of the body of Christ, we should be using the blessings that God has given us, our time, our talents, our treasures, and using those to benefit the greater body of Christ. We should be useful to the Lord. We should be useful to one another as believers. Much like when Paul said of Philemon in verse 7 that Philemon had refreshed the saints through his godly conduct, so should we seek such things to be useful to the Lord and useful to one another. With such an understanding of the impact of Christ on the believer's life, forgiveness within the body becomes so much easier. Paul sends Onesimus back to Philemon so that Philemon can see the impact of the gospel on his, own, uh, on his own testimony. He has given Philemon, Paul gives Philemon an opportunity to receive Onesimus back to witness what the Lord has done in this situation. We won't be able to extend forgiveness if there's no opportunity for interaction. There can be temporal consequences. We don't know if Philemon is going to be putting Onesimus back into a place where he would have access to the treasury of the house. But Philemon does receive him back. There is receipt in forgiveness. From receiving, we see the next action of forgiveness in verses 15 and 16. It says, For this perhaps is why he has parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Paul suggests to Philemon, not only bring him back into your house, not only let him be there, but restore him. Restore him back to service. Paul lets Philemon know that God's hand has been at work in this entire situation. Even the hurt that Philemon undoubtedly felt when Onesimus ran away and took the bounty with him. While not speaking for God, Paul draws our attention to the sovereignty of God. He says, perhaps this is why Onesimus departed. 
So that when he would come back, he wouldn't be useless. He wouldn't be that loathing man he was before. So that, but now he might be the useful, loving, bondservant and brother. Philemon could receive him back and now rejoice in the work they do together in the flesh and the work they do together in the kingdom of God, the work in the Lord there in verse 18. I'm sorry, in verse uh, 16. As a beloved brother and as a bondservant. In the work, I'm sorry, the end of verse 16. Both in the flesh and in the Lord. They worked together in the service that they were doing around the house, whatever uh, vocation they were in, and they worked together in the Lord. I would hope that a church, that this church, would be marked by restoration. That we would own up to our faults and gladly receive one another back into good company. I can say fairly confidently that by the grace of God, that's happened here before. There's been times in the past where someone or something has gone awry and feelings have been hurt. Poor decisions were made on either side and whatever the case may be, people have left the church with negative feelings. That's happened. It's happened here. It's happened to churches all over the world. But being here just a short time, I don't want to know or even comment on particulars, but I know that by the grace of God, folks have been drawn back to the family, back to the church, and by the grace of God, restored into loving membership as a body of Christ. To feel a loving, heavenly embrace. Christians, may we forgive each other by the glory of God and by the grace of God. In forgiving others, we receive, we restore. And then there's one more action in verses 17 and 18. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. The final action of forgiveness in this section of Philemon is uh, uh, rectification. Things will be rectified. The situation settled. In the case of Onesimus, it's likely he took a great deal of valuables from Philemon. It's possible that simply running away caused great financial harm to Philemon. And so Paul here says that if any harm has come to you, Philemon, by the way of Onesimus, if anything is owed, charge it to Paul's account. Paul says, accept him, receive him as you would accept or receive Paul himself. Restitution is an essential component of forgiveness, and it would have been right for Philemon to demand it of Onesimus. However, it's also not wrong to be gracious. It is good and right if you are an offender, if you are the person who has done wrong in a situation to try to make that situation right. If you look back to Zacchaeus, he was the corrupt tax collector who came to know the Lord and he repaid what he took back from the people, what, fourfold? When we offend someone, we should wholeheartedly seek to rectify that situation. We want to make situations right. Now, in this situation, Onesimus would have had little to no means. He was a runaway slave. Likely, like the prodigal son, he squandered all that he took from Philemon before he or while he was on the way to Rome. It was just 
for Philemon to ask for a repayment, to require a repayment for Onesimus to come back. And so when Paul offers to pay Onesimus's debt, he is removing pressure from Philemon that he would have felt to receive payment. It is good for Philemon to show grace towards the offender. In our lives, it is good to show grace to someone who has harmed us, particularly when they have no ways of repaying what they owe. We should also note here, Paul's willingness to meet Onesimus's debt to restore the relationship with Philemon is a marvelous picture of Christ's work. We get a little glimpse of the gospel. If we were to break down this situation, we see a reflection of the gospel. Bear with me here. Philemon was offended by Onesimus. Every one of our many sins are offensive to the holy nature of God. Onesimus stood before Philemon, honestly, completely dead to rights. No standing before Philemon. As I mentioned earlier, Philemon had every right to send Onesimus to his death, such as it is with sinners before a holy God. Because of our offenses, he has every right to give us the wrath that we deserve. But then Paul offers to pay the price of Onesimus, the price that Onesimus owes to bring reconciliation between Onesimus and Philemon. In a similar but even greater way, Christ died on the cross so that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. He dies so that God would forgive us our trespasses, canceling the record of debt that stood against us, having us dead to rights by the legal demands of the law. And he forgave us that debt and canceled that debt by nailing it to the cross of Jesus Christ. Christ paid our debt. When you have come to receive Jesus as Lord, you are forgiven in a way that is unimaginably beautiful and beyond compare. If that's something you want to know more about today, reach out and talk to me afterwards. Come during this hymn of response. Reach out today. But as we conclude this morning, I want to remind us that we are to be reflections of the grace that we have received. We're reflections of the love of Christ when we pay someone else's debt and facilitate reconciliation. May we be in the habit of receiving people back in our lives, restoring unity and rectifying situations, all of this done for one reason, for the glory of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this opportunity to look at your word. Lord, I pray that we would understand the great truths of the gospel, the great forgiveness that has been extended to us, not by an offer to pay, but by a price that was paid on the cross. As Christ shed his blood and his body was broken for us. As he said, it is finished. Lord, may we understand the great price that was paid, the great forgiveness extended through the payment of that price and live each moment in reflection of that, in response, understanding you saved us to live for your glory. 
May we do so for you are worthy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this edition of the Durban Memorial Baptist Church podcast. If you want to find out more about our church, you can check out www.durbanchurch.org. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or you can give us a call or text to 859-813-0369. Also, you can shoot us an email at brad at durbanchurch.org. Have a wonderful day and God bless.